You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individuals and employers, nor the official opinions of C-19. Welcome to the latest edition of the C-19 Podcast. I'm Matthew Touch, and in this episode, I will be speaking with historian Carrie Lee Merritt about her research in new book, Masterless Men, Poor Whites, and Slavery in the Antebellum South from Cambridge University Press. Uh, we will discuss how her research counters the binary images of the North and South during the antebellum period, and also how our research illuminates our own cultural milieu. Along the way, we will also explore the importance of archival research and the intersections between study of history and literature. So welcome, Carrie Lee. Thanks for having me, Matthew. Thank you. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your research and your book and how you kind of got interested in the subject? Well, I've always been interested in Southern history growing up in the Deep South. Um, I think it's pretty hard to live here without really realizing um, the great racial divide. And I also grew up with, you know, a lot of um, very impoverished people in my own family and noticed the class divide as well. Um, My grandmother was basically illiterate, um, lived in a small little mill village house in um, kind of the foothills of Appalachia. And so I, I kind of grew up seeing all of this poverty and all of this racial strife around me and wanted to study it. When I entered graduate school, I knew I wanted to look at poor whites in particular and realized that pretty much nothing had been written on them, um, uh, specifically in the 19th century. Um, and there was a good reason for that. Almost every poor white in the early 19th century was illiterate. And so they didn't leave any written records. And so I had to be very creative in trying to figure out um, how to get at these people. And so I did that through a variety of different means, um, looking at slave narratives, um, Confederate um, veterans records, newspapers, a lot of legal records, uh, coroner's reports, petitions to governors. Um, So I, I was able to get at these people that way. But Uh, What I found, as you were talking about, is that the South, just like the North, had a very large underclass of white people. Um, In the North, of course, they were deemed wage slaves. In the South, it was a little bit different because the Deep South, the Cotton South, the part that I look at, I mainly look at South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, um, in the 1830s and 40s, there are about 800,000 slaves that are moved from the upper South to the lower South. And so when all of these slaves um, kind of flood the labor market in, this, in the deep South, a lot of these white workers, white wage laborers are displaced from their jobs. And so they're unemployed or underemployed. And that leads to, you know, all the attendant ills that usually come with poverty. Yeah, you mentioned, I think it's interesting you mentioned where you had to go for this research, that there's not much done on it in, say, literature of the period. Um, You mentioned legal records, but you also mentioned slave narratives. Are there any particular kind of slave narratives you looked at? Because one of the thoughts that I have is Solomon Northrop's 12 Years a Slave, where there's uh, poor white, essentially, not labeled poor white, Arby, who comes and is on Epps' plantation, 
and works with Northrop and the other slaves in the field, but tries to betray Northrop. So trying to raise up to be an overseer, extend his class. Um, are there any examples that you saw from slave narratives that you mentioned, like any specific slave narratives? Yes, the uh, the WPA slave narratives that were, of course, conducted um, under the New Deal, and then there was there was a, a kind of a sister program run out of Fisk University, where they uh, interviewed hundreds and hundreds of, of former slaves, and the questions that they were instructed to ask these people, a lot of them were centered on class, and they pointedly asked about poor whites, and so there's a lot of really good information. Um, on the class divide between whites in the antebellum period. Um, but cases that, uh, like Northrop's that you're talking about were very common. Um, planters would hire poor whites to work their plantations during the bottleneck seasons of planting and harvesting, which meant that, of course, they were, they were working alongside slaves. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, too. You mentioned the WPA that of course, that's 1930, so mm -hmm. way, way after the antebellum period. And something I've noticed with my reading, this is taking us into the 20th century, is around this time, too, with Willa Cather and um, Lyle Sachs and others, you start seeing that term poor white kind of creep in, I think, to the literature. I mean, even mm -hmm. Ernest Gaines later, you have it. Um, you really have it with Frank Yerby in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s throughout his career. So I think that I'm wondering if and there's Faulkner. a connection there. Yeah. So I'm really wondering if there's kind of a connection with the WPA um, and maybe that introduction. Where did that introduction of that term come in, at least with regard to your research? Um, where did you kind of first encounter that term, I guess? Maybe in literature, history? I, I mean, growing up, you know, poor, poor in the South, you always hear about po-whites, as, as we call them down here. But um, there was a revival of the term definitely around the Great Depression. That's when kind of the rest of the world, uh, the rest of the United States realized just how poor the South still was. You know, uh, FDR called it the nation's number one economic problem, and it still is today. But um, so they were they were always called poor whites in the antebellum period. Um, and the way I define poor whites in the book is that they didn't own land and they didn't own slaves. Um, these were people who were cyclically poor, you know, not pe not young men waiting to come into their inheritance. Um, but it was a cyclical culture of poverty that was um, almost near impossible to escape. And I make the argument that we still see the vestiges of this poverty today. I mean, that's why the South is the poorest region in America. And the deep South, the old cotton South, is the poorest out of the South. Yeah, you mentioned that, that we still see vestiges of it today. And, you know, one thing that I think that's fascinating about your, your study is the fact that you're showing again, that there's not this binary of North and South or, you know, um, everybody in the South is slave owners and wealthy. Um, I think you use Hinton Helper a lot, who I didn't know really much about until you kind of brought it to my attention. And doing some research, you know, Ibram X. Kendi kind of just had a, a post this last summer in Time about Helper and his position. Um, in that piece, Kendi writes that Helper has largely been forgotten and he says, quote, but Helper's Impending Christ of the South is the only book other than Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin that, story, that historians have kept in their bag of causes of the Civil War. Um, why is Helper and Impending Crisis so important, not just historically to your study, but I think also contemporaneously to what you're talking about, this continual cycle and perpetual vestiges of this today? I remember 
as you know, in, in high school reading about the impending crisis, it was like a line in the textbook and, you know, no more than that, but just being very intrigued by it. And I probably didn't read the whole thing until I was actually in graduate school researching for the dissertation. But when you read the, his entire body of writing, it, it you see just how radical um, and how frightening it must have been to slaveholders because it really was a call to arms. I mean, he was telling what he said were five million poor whites in the South to kind of band together with slaves. He, he had no concern for slaves. He was actually very racist. But he said that white people, poor whites, suffered a second degree of slavery because slavery depressed their wages, took their jobs, um, you know, left them uneducated and, and in cyclical poverty, and and pointed out piece by piece, very methodically, how it injured their lives, how it made their lives bad. And slaveholders were so afraid of of poor whites hearing this message, getting this message that they banned um, Helper's book from the South completely. They uh, searched the mails for it. They, um, if they ever found a copy, people were lynched. You know, white men were being lynched over having copies of this. Um, tarred, feathered, you know, strung up on a rail, um, beaten within an inch of their lives. And, it, I mean, if you, if you read it, like I said, you see just how, how radical it was. And if, if the message had gotten out, they slaveholders would have had a lot of problems. Yeah, this I mean, the response to that seems kind of like similar to David Walker's appeal. Yes. Text and text such as that. And you said that he has no concern for for slaves. So what was the you know, how did the wealthy white landowners, you know, the ones who owned slaves and own land, how did they kind of suppress this this joining together of, say, poor whites and either free people of color or enslaved individuals? What were the kind of methods they used to to keep these groups apart? Well, so there was not a lot of segregation um, codified in law um, in the antebellum period, but uh, just the way they lived, they would uh, slaveholders would buy all these big plantations around the town center, and poor whites were always pushed kind of to the margins of town. So they they did live, you know, outside of the towns about as far as possible. But um, there was there was constant trading going on between slaves appropriating goods, usually foodstuffs, from from the plantations, and then trading with poor whites, often for liquor. Um, but they also slaveholders made sure that there was no universal system of public education in the Deep South, so poor whites were not able to read. Um, they weren't able to read these messages, and even if they were, like I said, there was such a deep um, censorship going on there that they wouldn't actually be able to get their hands on um, any of the real revolutionary articles or books that were being written at the time. Um, but they also, slaveholders formed this incredibly um, effective system of vigilante violence. So in the 1840s and 50s, as, as they're kind of realizing, you know, slavery is under attack by not only abolitionists, but the slaves themselves, um, they create these vigilante societies, these Minutemen groups, and they literally just ride around policing the entire South, um, you know, making sure people don't have uh, literature and books that, or newspapers they don't want them to have, um, ensuring, uh, you know, trying to keep down as much trade between the races as possible, trying to keep down any kind of social interactions. And, and, and if they found something going on, again, it, it would be met with 
incredible amounts of violence. And this, what you're talking about kind of reminds me of, of course, surveillance and Jim Crow. And I think yes. even continuing today, as we've been talking, you've talked about the vestiges, you know, of the system of keeping poor whites, you know, in check and lower than wealthy landowners and how wealthy white landowners sought to keep poor whites and blacks separate. And as part of keeping them separate, you, you know, you bring out these racist kind of ideas that they perpetuated and kind of pushed. Um, do we still see that continuation? I know you've written a piece for Bill Moyers about how the wealthy are still keeping the classes separated with this kind of racist rhetoric. And there was also a piece, I think, in The Root recently about um, white groups and mixed race groups, I would say, who are bringing this to the forefront. So how would you like to comment on that? Um, I definitely think it's it's still uh, very prevalent today. I mean, as we've seen with uh, especially brought out in a Trump campaign, um, you know, very explicitly uh, using race in order to divide people and try to uh, get the votes of um, poor whites. Um, we, I think in America, we have the ten a tendency to very much blame poor and working class whites for racism. And I don't want to take that blame away, but I, I, want the, I want the blame to be shared by upper class whites because they are the ones perpetuating it. They are the ones you know, pushing the message, constantly trying to uh, stir up racial discord. They're the ones in charge of the media. They're the ones in charge of politics. And they're the ones who are primarily benefiting from it. Um, it poor whites should be voting, uh, you know, due to what they need economically, socioeconomically. They should be voting for very progressive leftist candidates. And of course, as we see, that doesn't happen. Largely, I think, um, due to racism and xenophobia and 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 that kind of insular thinking that is perpetuated from above. And you know, you constantly hear people saying, well, why are they voting against their self-interests? Well, there's a lot of reasons. They, they do benefit from racism to a certain degree. But I also make the argument that racism is bad for them in a lot of ways, too. That's that's the way that we've never had a real um, concerted labor movement in the U.S. because race keeps the two groups or you know, now more than two groups of workers constantly divided and, and never able to come together and really fight together for something. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, you mentioned at one point that um, the plantation owners would kind of construct the town around the center and then kind of push the poor whites out to the outside, right? Mm -hmm. So we see that kind of too, at least coming around the 1900s after the Civil War with Confederate monuments. Um, do you see a connection there between that same type of surveillance, I would say, before the Civil War and afterwards, that same kind of um, implementation of that surveillance and control, I guess you would say, but maybe for African-Americans in this case instead of poor whites? Yes, definitely. Um, one of the books that I will probably write in the future is kind of a continuation on Masterless Men that takes it through Reconstruction. And what I'm working on right now is looking at the birth of the police um, in the South, which happens, of course, like the professional uniform police forces all um, form right after emancipation, literally within the first five to 10 years after emancipation, all of the rural South gets these professional police forces, which take over the, the role of the old slave patrols in a lot of ways and these vigilante societies. And then, of course, you have the Klan, which takes over part of that role. Um, and so it is an incredibly heavily police surveilled society, um, 
every action is, you know, somebody's watching you. And again, as soon as you step out of line, or if they even think you're going to step out of line, there are immediate reactions. And thinking about that surveillance too, um, what was kind of after the civil war, you're saying that there was a difference of course, between poor whites and, and white landowners. What kind of happened after the civil war in regards to say the term of whiteness and kind of, was there a flattening where they kind of came together or did they still remain separate? Like what? I, I think it, it gets really, really complicated. Um, but I definitely buy into W.E.B. Du Bois's argument that there is a realignment of race and class that happens during Reconstruction where poor whites are brought into a lot of the privileges of whiteness um, in different ways from you know being able to apply for land through the Homestead Acts by, um, you know, finally having a, a system of universal public education um, implemented mainly through the Freedmen's Bureau, ironically. Um, poor whites are finally able to get educated. Um, and they also um, eventually become preferred laborers in a lot of cases. You know, a lot of um, uh, big plantation holders after the Civil War finally turned to using white tenant farmers, white sharecroppers, whereas, you know, under slavery, they couldn't ever get any kind of work. Um, and so they, they are brought into the privileges of whiteness that way. Also with voting, um, not, I'm not saying that they had a lot of freedom and who they voted for, but they were finally even allowed to vote in a lot of instances, um, because upper-class whites wanted that white solidarity because they knew they had, um, to balance out the black vote in some ways. So that, that's definitely a future project that I will hopefully be working on. Yeah, that's one thing, as I said earlier, some of the authors I've been reading, at least more 20th century authors like Frank Yerby talks about the Vixens um, in his prologue, saying that he kind of paints this picture of this flattening. Uh, he has a character, I think, in Benton's Row um, from the 1950s that after the Civil War is coming back to the South with a wealthy landowner. And the guy basically says, hey, I can latch myself onto you and I can rise up. I'm basically free now. There's discussion of free, the freeing of the poor white um, yes. after the civil war. But one of the things that you kind of mentioned there too, was talking about archival work and um, finding things in the archives. You mentioned that earlier. What do you think is the importance of archival work? I would say not just for, well, the importance of archival work for our profession as a whole, historians, librarians, um, liter literary scholars, academics, I, I think it's incredibly important because I, my project would never have been been able to be written. You know, I mean, if you're just looking at, at, at published sources, you can't get to people who were not literate. Um, and it is a much harder, uh, a harder way to do things uh, to really kind of drill down and find, you know, for every case I give in the book, you know, I have probably... 10 or you know, 20 cases like that, that I ended up not including. But, um, I mean, getting down into the archives and really getting dirty, getting your hands dirty and, and, and seeing all the violence, seeing all the pain, um, brings an entire another level to, um, I think the way we, we approach the subject. Yeah. You're getting kind of, to a certain extent, I would say unfiltered kind of access I yes. Mean, if I'm thinking, even the letters are kind of filtered and constructed, um, you can't necessarily filter as much, I would say, a slave ledger 
or maybe a court, mm-hmm. you can filter like court records or at least comments on what happened. But there are some things that are unfiltered. And I have my students work in the archives, um, my sophomore students, and the things they find are just fascinating. You know, thinking about some of the things they found kind of in the last, you know, last semester, they in a folder full of slave records and bills of sale for this family in Alabama, there was also a certificate from the 1850s that this slaveholder was a member of the American Colonization Society. Mm-hmm. So what do you do with that? I had a student find um, a Civil War journal from a northern soldier who says, I'm basically being used as cannon fodder. I don't care about this. So it right. kind of breaks apart, at least in my students' minds, these these binary ways of thinking that we thought about and also kind of illuminates for them that these are people that actually live and, you know, went through these things, not just printed words in a book. Um, mm mm-hmm. You know, thinking about that, too, what was probably one of the, the most interesting or fascinating things you kind of found at the archives that you were like maybe shocked by or maybe just like this is exciting? Well, honestly, a lot of what I found was really quite horrifying, um, especially when I got into really looking at coroner's reports. I mean, you can find a lot about a lot out about a society um, by looking at the way people die and especially the early deaths, you know, the, the, the non-natural um, deaths. And so it, you really see the levels of violence that are just so prevalent. And, and I argue they come from living in such a brutal slave society. But, you know, child abuse to the point of, you know, men killing their children, men killing their wives, constantly beating them. Um, the other thing that surprised me was the levels of infanticide. And a lot of the infanticide, it looks like, especially among poorer white women, um, was due to interracial mixing. You know, they would be pregnant with mixed race babies and they knew whether it was because they knew that the child would never be accepted into society or whether they would be banished or punished in some ways. These women were killing their their mixed race infants at at what seemingly is a very high rate. Yeah, that, I mean, that brings to mind, of course, Teddy Morrison's beloved, Margaret Garner, mm-hmm. and other stories of enslaved individuals who did that as well. So that's kind of a fascinating connection there. Um, what are some other kind of, I know you said horrendous, um, was there anything kind of joyful that you found? I know that may be the total, other end of the spectrum. It was, uh, it's interesting to just kind of see how society works. You know, you see this circus coming through town once a year. You see, you know, they have the, the, the religious camp revivals. I make the case that most poor whites weren't going to church every Sunday. But, you know, whenever they had like a camp meeting, a camp revival, that was a big social deal. So everyone would come out, you know, to that. And they'd all get, you know, wasted drunk pretty much. <laughs> you know, have a barbecue and have a good time. And it was a way to blow off steam and kind of, uh, recent our society in a lot of ways, court days and election days were very similar, very hedonistic affairs, um, tons of alcohol consumed, um, you know, very, very kind of festive, uh, rowdy. I mean, it would be like, you know, the aftermath of a Super Bowl kind of atmosphere. You, you think of it. So almost kind of carnivalesque, it sounds like. Yes, absolutely. And it, it almost brings you back to those old, um, you know, like, uh, early modern Europe, the, the kind of, you know, you, you need to have some kind of safety valve in society every so, so often, every so many months or years 
where you, you just let people get rip roaring drunk and have a good time and, and forget about how painful their everyday lives are. That sounds, that sounds like something I'd want to research because it reminds me so much of Mardi Gras. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So I'm not sure exactly what to do with that, but it makes total sense. Um, you know, the other thing that really interests me too is you're of course a historian and I'm a literary scholar and I really see, I think it's obvious and most people probably agree with this, that there is a definitely a connection between us, yet we still kind of seem separate. I know there are conferences that incorporate interdisciplinary between historians and literary scholars. Um, how do you see those connections? Because coming from a literary background, reading your book illuminates a lot of what I read, as I've said, you know, in the 20th century. Um, and I know we've had conversations back and forth about especially Frank Yerby and his use of poor whites, you know, how do you mm -hmm. see this kind of interconnection and how do you think we can kind of show the younger generation and that, you know, in this case, I'm talking about my students or others, that this is important, that what they learn in my literature class is just as important and connects probably in more ways than they realize with what they learn in their early American history class. Well, I mean, I think what we're doing today is, is a good example. And, and, I, I have I have critiqued my own discipline for being too insular and in how they conduct history um, to I think what's been a great detriment to the field in the last 20 years. We don't we, we really haven't looked much at literature. We haven't looked much at um, economics even. And so I, I personally push very much to have much more of an interdisciplinary um, field. You know, I wish everybody working on the 19th century South, no matter what discipline, kind of work together, get together and have a conference. And I think, you know, the AHA and the, is it the MLA or, mm -hmm. or, or, are actually now going to have their conferences together next year. Yeah. In Chicago. Um, mm -hmm. so it's just things like that. But I also think that social media is a great, I mean, that's exactly how I met you getting right. on social media, getting on Twitter and, and then being able to connect with other scholars outside of your discipline that you maybe never have even heard of. But through social media, you can find those same interests um, connecting you. And blogs like um, AIHS, the African American Intellectual History Society, which you and I both have written for, those kind of um, those kind of blog sites, I think, are going to be a great bridge in bringing um, scholars together from different subject fields. Yeah, the, you mentioned the AIHS. I'm teaching United States history, of course. That blog, um, the Junto. Mm -hmm. Which of course a little bit earlier, but you know I think all of those things kind of help us to to bridge these connections. And as you said, we met through I think AIHS and then mm -hmm. just kind of connected in that manner. Um, and the things I've learned from reading your book, like I said, are very illuminating for things that are in my own research and have pushed me kind of in that direction to look at that with my work on Frank Yerby and even Ernest Gaines, who mm -hmm. Ernest Gaines is talks about um, rural Louisiana and the 1940s, a little bit earlier, Jim Crow era. But there are instances in there where he's talking about class and separation of individuals based on class, specifically Cajuns. It's kind of the poor white in that case, Cajuns. Absolutely. Um, wealthy landowners, um, Creoles, mixed race individuals in that case, and then African-Americans and blacks. So he's addressing those same issues that you said we still see the vestigial kind of perpetuation of. Um, you know... I have no more questions. Oh, great. Thank you for your time, Carrie Lee. Um, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me, Matthew, and I hope you and your graduate students have a, have a great semester. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the C19 podcast. Enjoyed this episode? 
Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19Podcast or get in touch with us at C19Podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.